It's the Barbell Medicine Podcast, where we bring modern medicine to strength conditioning and strength and conditioning to modern medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Jordan Feigenbaum. If you're a new listener to the Barbell Medicine Podcast, welcome. If you're a returning listener, welcome back. Happy to have you. This is episode number 176. It's all about energy balance, baby. Basically, we're going to tell you how to determine the appropriate calorie intake. This is part two of two. Part one is linked in the description below. So if you haven't listened to that yet, pause this one, go back, listen to the first one, and that'll set you up for this particular podcast. Before we hop in to part two, uh, a few announcements. In case you were wondering, yes, I did have a powerlifting meet this past weekend. We're going to talk about it on the next podcast, but to uh, commemorate me having a meet and our new meet t-shirt and the rest of our apparel being restocked, we're going to give you guys 15% off all of the apparel on our website right now for today only. Uh, 15% off. Use code BBMPOD. That's B-B-M-P-O-D. It ends at 12 a.m. Pacific Standard Time on Thursday, May 12th. So you have the rest of the day, or depending on what time zone you're in, um, to take 15% off all of the apparel on our website. So go check that out. I'll put a link in the description below. Also, we've got some new templates, revised templates that are out. Um, sore shoulder rehab template is back up. The hip rehab template is now live also on our website. So if you have shoulder pain or hip pain respectively, and you've had some issues working through it. Um, these are the perfect templates for you. They both include three different blocks of programming designed to take you from, um, you know, can't do all the regular exercises at your uh, typical loads and all the activities that you would prefer back to sort of normal training and normal, you know, recreational pursuits. So check those out. Those are also linked in the description below. Also, just to remind everyone, our app is available now. It's a free download on the Apple App Store. You can log all your progress, track changes, view your program through there. Um, also, our recent updates, you get uh, template previews on all of the templates that we have. Um, and also, there's a template picker. So if you're unclear of like what template uh, should you do, basically, we've taken that part of my brain and put it into the app so you guys can uh, kind of figure out what uh, templates we'd recommend. So you can download that today, link that in the description below. And then finally, please, if you are a Barbell Medicine podcast listener, um, and you want to help us out, please take the survey. I've linked that in the description below. We're trying to bring some sponsors on to the show, uh, just a few, uh, mainly to help cover the cost of production. Um, and so we can bring you a high quality product uh, more frequently. So if you want to help us out, Go take uh, take our survey. All right. Without further ado, let's hop into this week's podcast. All right. So we're back with more on how to determine energy intake. So we're trying to figure out how many calories do you need per day? Why do you need these many calories? And what happens if you change that? Uh, so we're going to talk about energy balance to begin and what happens if it's positive or negative. Austin, do you want to just hash out again, what is, what are the factors of energy balance? Yeah. The, the two sides that we kind of, uh, uh, elaborated on last time was, uh, total daily energy intake or the calories that an individual consumes in a given day. Um, and we talked about all the factors, you know, there are certain, uh, biological factors that can influence, uh, uh influence this things like genetics, et cetera. There are also psychological, social factors, the food environment that you are in, lots of things that can influence the amount of uh, calories that an individual will consume. There's also individual variation in how much of that gets absorbed and how it's subsequently metabolized in a given individual. So that was one side was the, the calorie intake. And we'll, we'll probably touch on this uh, pretty heavily in this episode in, in more detail. Um, on the energy expenditure side, this was kind of like people how what people commonly think of as, as calories burned um, in a given day. And these are determined by, uh, number one, uh, resting 
energy expenditure, which is primarily driven by lean body mass, which we talked about for, you know, for uh, the, the purposes of our listeners can think of as uh, the amount of muscle mass that they're carrying, uh, because that's probably the most modifiable one. You could get more jacked, less jacked, uh, whereas manipulating the size of your organs and body water is, uh, is less useful from this standpoint. Um, the other component, in addition to resting energy expenditure, was diet-induced. This is a smaller fraction, how much energy it actually takes to uh, digest and absorb and, and, and take care of the, the food that you actually consume. And then finally, it was activity-related. This is uh, whether exercise activity or non-exercise activity. And all of these things kind of sum up to generate the amount of the total amount of energy or calories that an individual expends or burns in a given day. There's tons of variation in all of these, in all people. They're influenced, driven uh, by various factors. Um, and as we alluded to multiple times in the prior episode, many of those uh, kind of factors that can influence both calorie intake and calorie uh, expenditure are not consciously chosen or, or, or kind of determined on a day-to-day -day basis. It's not like you're going through your day each second to second deciding um, which calories are going to be consumed or not, or which calories are going to be burned or not, and in what way. Much of this is regulated. Um, you know, under underlying biology is driving a lot of this stuff outside of your conscious control. And so ultimately, that's what leads to overall energy balance. And so today, we're going to get into what happens when that is thrown off in some way and why. Yeah, I think when people hear the word energy balance, they're like, yeah, so energy in, so calories in, matches calories out, just perfectly neat, nice and neat. And theoretically, if an individual is maintaining body weight and body composition over an extended period of time, that would be true. So if somebody is maintaining body weight, maintaining muscle mass, and maintaining fat mass over time, they are in energy balance by definition. Energy equilibrium, if you're like a fan of uh, Claude Bernard and <laughs> Walter Cannon. Uh, on the other hand, you could also be an energy balance and energy equilibrium. If you're an individual with obesity, if you're carrying extra body fat and really the biggest problem with obesity is that you have these excess fat mass stores that are being preserved. You're effectively preserving energy balance at a higher than healthy, higher than normal amount of body fat. What you would want to happen because, again, as Austin alluded to and will continue to harp on anytime we talk about nutrition, a lot of the eating behaviors, uh, so portion size, energy intake, energy expenditure, all this sort of stuff, uh, a lot of this is happening outside of your conscious control. And so you're not in you know controlling on a very fine level like how much energy is coming in and how much energy is going out. And so people become imbalanced. But people, you know, in general, do not gain large and large amounts of fat mass over time, just like they don't lose large and large amounts of muscle mass over time unless something else disturbed the system. And so the body's regulating very closely energy balance. And so the issue with obesity is that the body is preserving excessive fat mass at a level that is higher than normal, that is unhealthy. And we don't say unhealthy in this condescending way. It just means that it increases the risk of many different types of diseases, which is why they're called adiposity-related chronic disease. Um, I think when people hear the term unhealthy, they're like, mm, bad, negative, this person, bad. It's like, no, we're just we're literally defining the thing here. So uh, in any case, energy balance, is, the principle here of energy balance is that body weight change, any change in body weight that's, non that's not due to fluid changes. So loss of body water or gain of body water is due to some sort of imbalance between energy intake and energy expenditure. Um, but yeah, if you're in a positive energy balance, people tend to gain weight. 
If you're in a negative energy balance, people will lose weight. If you're in energy equilibrium, perfect balance, you tend to preserve weight. And you can do that with a low amount of body fat. You can do that with a normal or healthy amount of body fat. And you can do that with a high amount of body fat. The problem is what you would prefer is that all of the compensatory mechanisms that regulate energy intake, if you have a high amount of body fat, it would kick in and say, hey, we don't need all this extra fat mass. We don't need all this extra energy. Let's get rid of it. And the problem with obesity is that doesn't happen. It doesn't happen. So uh, if we fix that, shoot, we'd be good to go. Um, it should be pointed out here that energy intake and expenditure have little association over a given day, meaning that if you plotted your energy intake and energy expenditure like a, on a single day, two days, three days, you would not see them line up perfectly, not even close. Uh, and so, again, when people think about energy balance, they're thinking, oh, it's got to be the same. I need the same amount of calories that come in, the same amount of calories that go out over a 24-hour period, 48-hour period, 72-hour period. Uh, that balance is actually struck over a much longer period of time. We're talking weeks to months. Um, so that kind of highlights, uh, the reason why we see the weight loss results, um, that we actually, that we, that we do meaning that when people assume, oh, if I just am at an energy, uh, if I'm at a negative energy balance of 3,500 calories a day, I'm going to lose a pound. We don't see that. We don't see that. In fact, if people had maintained, uh, just as small as a 10 calorie negative energy balance, the reduction in body weight would be a pound. Once the body reaches a new steady state, you're like, just, I got 10 calories. That's two sticks of gum, dude. I could do that. Two sticks of gum. I'm down a pound. Shoot. I'll be good to go. The problem is the time it takes for the body to reach a new steady state is about a year to get half of that weight loss. So half a pound and three years to receive, to achieve 95% of that weight loss. So the steady state is occurring over a much longer period of time, right? So when people are like, oh yeah, I'm going to eat 3,500 calories less this week total. So that's a 500 calorie deficit a day times seven days. That's 3,500 calorie deficit. I'm gonna lose a pound this week. That's not how this works. It's over a, a much longer scale, which again calls into question, like, do you really need to know your energy intake level? <laughs> like, is that because it's just happening over a much longer period of time. There's also a lot of uh, variance between individuals too. These are some of my favorite studies that I that got into for the from the book. So this one study uh, took 12 pairs of identical adult male twins. They were uh, about age 21. They were admitted to a research facility. Uh, so this is a metabolic ward study where they're you know, basically kept under lock and key and, and fed exacting amounts of food. Uh, they consumed a diet that was 1,000 calories per day above maintenance level. So above where they would be need to be to be in perfect energy balance or energy intake. It was exactly equal to energy expenditure, which you can determine in a lab. We'll talk about that here shortly. So they ate a thousand calories above maintenance six days a week for a hundred days. And every seventh day, they are at maintenance level intake. And it's funny in the actual study, they were like, the people were complaining. They were like, look, I don't want to eat all this food. Don't make me do it. <laughs> that's, a, that's a substantial, yeah, that's a substantial amount of calories. They needed a cheat day, but the opposite way. <laughs> right. <laughs> like they tapped out by the end of the week, right? Yeah. I know some listeners are probably like a thousand calories more a day. I could do that. It's like, <laughs> Could you though? <clears throat> yeah. So they had a cheat day, which was when they were eating maintenance. Um, but yeah. So uh, what they did is every five days, they did a body weight, body fat, waist and hip measurements. And they additionally tested body fat using a CT scan and hydrostatic weighing, which is the, the dunk tank. Um, and they did this uh, at, additionally at the beginning and the end of this overfeeding period. Uh, so on average, on average, the body weight increased by 8.1 kilos during this overfeeding period, uh, of which 
kilos were fat and 2.8 kilos were lean body mass, which is just not fat mass. And so again, that goes back to part one, where we're talking about the difference between lean body mass and fat-free mass, lean body mass, fat-free mass, uh, that includes muscle tissue, organ tissue, water, anything that's not fat. So I don't think they gained in two weeks, 2.8 kilos of lean body mass. They probably gained a half kilo of muscle mass maybe, and the rest like water, food, you know, <laughs> stuff like that. So in any case, each pair of twins had nearly identical results. Uh, as far as the amount of weight gain and changes in body composition to the other twin. But the range of weight gained and body composition changes differed markedly between the pairs of twins. So one group of twins gained 13.3 kilos, for example. Another group of twins gained 4.3 kilos. That's a nine kilo difference in a couple of weeks from overfeeding. The exact same amount. So they were all on the same calorie surplus and one group gained almost 20 pounds more. Yeah. Similar relationships were also seen for anthropometric and body composition measurements. So as far as fat mass versus lean mass gained, um, related twins were very, very similar to each other, but markedly different from others. It's not an isolated finding. Another study, uh, on these same twins found that after the overfeeding period, body weight and body composition changes were, again, nearly identical for related twins, but vastly different between twin pairs. So what happened is after the study, they followed them and they're like, you don't have to eat these surplus calories anymore. It's fine, guys. You're going to be fine. And they, and they all lost weight. And the amount of weight they lost and the fraction that was from lean body mass and the fraction that was from fat mass were very, very similar between twins, but very, very different between pairs of twins. Um, yep. Yeah. Final study on twins, just because this is so interesting. Uh, <laughs> same researchers took a different pair of twins, seven pairs of them. They were also about age 21, so probably fresh out of college or maybe the service, uh, and observed them during a 117-day controlled feeding study. This time, it wasn't a calorie surplus. It was a calorie deficit. They created this deficit entirely through exercise. So basically what they did is they figured out what these persons, these persons' maintenance level of calorie uh, expenditure was on a given day. And you can do that again in the lab. And they fed them exactly that amount. And then they exercised them on an exercise bike to burn a thousand calories per day. Every 10th day, no cycling. Again, they needed a cheat day. It was every 10th day. Average weight loss but for the uh, twins was five kilos, which was almost entirely body fat. And again, nearly identical for related twins, but there were nearly seven and 14 fold differences between unrelated twin pairs with respect to weight and body fat changes respectively. That means that one pair of twins lost a ton of weight and another pair of twins lost almost no weight. And one pair of twins lost a lot of fat mass and another pair of twins lost more muscle mass. Pretty, pretty impressive stuff. It just goes to show you there is a high amount of inter-individual variability here. That's what twin studies are useful for. Um, so what would you say if somebody heard what you just reported on these things? These people were eating the same calorie surplus, calorie deficit, exercising the same, whatever the case is, and depending on the study you were looking at, and they have these very different uh, outcomes, and they use that to conclude that uh, calories aren't the thing that matters or drives these differences. I mean, the, the data here very clearly shows that calories are the thing, just that people respond differently. And there are multiple compensatory redundant mechanisms that can act variably, meaning that 
in some folks who are will respond well to a dietary uh, or, or change uh, with respect to altering energy intake or an activity change with respect to altering energy expenditure. Some people will have large results. Other people will have small, you know, non-responders and everything in between. But none of this negates the calorie argument. Right. Right. Just shows so like in the first study, you had people consuming a substantial thousand calorie surplus of food that went into their mouths. But if you compared the people who gained the least amount of weight to those who gained the most, perhaps this wasn't directly looked at, but perhaps you might find that those who gained the least amount of weight, maybe there were people who tended to start losing more energy in their feces, like not to actually fully absorb that. They didn't choose that. Or perhaps when they're on a calorie surplus, they spontaneously start to increase their NEAT, as we talked about last time. Their energy expenditure starts to go up. They start spontaneously burning more calories without necessarily choosing or, or, or um, you know, volunteering to do that or any number of other compensatory mechanisms that lead those people who gained the least amount of weight in the calorie surplus to be relatively more obesity resistant, you could call them. And those who gained the most weight went the other way on all of these, or they lacked many of these compensatory mechanisms that that made them more susceptible to gaining more body fat, more body weight on the same degree of calorie surplus as their, uh, as the other uh, twins in that study. And the same goes for the, the calorie deficit study. These uh, compensatory mechanisms can kind of throw a wrench in things, um, but it does not negate the idea that this overall energy balance situation is what's driving the, the differences in outcomes. Yeah. You know, it, it reminds me of like the training variability thing, right? So it's like you put a thousand people on the same program and, you know, two, there's going to be a bell curve, a response, right? Some people are going to be freaks, extreme responders. Other people are going to be non-responders. And then everybody else is going to fall somewhere in the middle. Most people on average are going to have about average results. But no one is saying <laughs> that like, oh, well, because people got different results, training isn't a thing. It's yeah. not the truth. <laughs> or like those who didn't respond, they just like didn't choose to get strong. Yeah, like me, or, me, or and you, me and you over the past decade, we just like chose to, you know, pull well over 700 we just you know got there we just chose to yeah. <laughs> I, I i think i think it is interesting because I, I agree that the like the people who aren't getting great results right that in in general people are like well you just it's more acceptable to think ah you just haven't found what's worked for you or the, the right you know kind of thing Formal. right that that seems to be a more perva- uh, uh pervasive kind of thought than people who are like not you know not successful or less successful with weight weight loss or weight loss maintenance um but if you are very successful in exercise, sport, or whatever, and you have you know really good results, I think you do get a little bit extra. You get a little bump, a little social credit there. Yeah, where people, it's the sport myth, right? It's like you know they're very virtuous and hardworking, and it's like yeah, I mean all that's that that can be true. You know, two things can be true at once. Yes, they may work hard, but that may not be their choice. There may be some other factors involved there. But uh, we'll save that for our spinoff podcast, like <laughs> <laughs> social determinants of performance, for, for example. Um, but yeah, it very clear to me that calories, you know, are the things driving the boat. It's just there's a lot of other stuff that happens in the in between that can complicate the relationship. Um, this does call into question the utility, though, of knowing like how many calories you're supposed to eat per day and like regulating that. Yeah, it's this complex interrelated web of variables where you manipulate one, you you tug on that string a little bit, and then a whole bunch of things pull in a different direction that you can't predict or necessarily always control. And so, yeah, to what degree of granularity do you actually need to know that energy intake? Uh, um, uh, you know, to the to the calorie, if like 
there's going to be a bunch of other compensatory mechanisms that kick in and may negate it to varying degrees between different people. Maybe not so much. Yeah, it did. It's, it doesn't, that does not, however, you know, make the argument about energy balance less, less applicable. It is true. It's just more complicated. That's it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So how can we actually determine energy intake? Kind of leading into this, like, mm, is it super important? Uh, I don't know. But how do we do it in the first place? So if you're in a research setting, <laughs> warning for complicated scientific jargon. I like that disclaimer. No, it's true. We're not going to get like too, too into the weeds here, but there are two principal ways that this is done in the research. One is using a technique called doubly labeled water, which if you've read any nutrition studies, you've seen DLW. You know, it, it's not just an author. It's a, uh, a way to measure um, energy expenditure. And so long story short, they give subjects, a, uh, they make them drink doubly labeled water. Um, it's just two different isotopes of uh, hydrogen and oxygen mixed together in an elixir and you drink it because it's water. Uh, and then you can, you collect urine samples over time and you see how much hydrogen has been eliminated and how much oxygen has been eliminated because they're differentially uh, cleared. Hydrogen gets eliminated as water. The oxygen gets eliminated as water and carbon dioxide. So if you subtract the hydrogen from the oxygen, you just get are left with carbon dioxide and you can use that to determine energy expenditure. Anyway, this is done in research setting all the time to determine energy expenditure and therefore determine the energy intake needs of an individual to be at the perfect energy balance or energy equilibrium. But there's still 5% error here. So 100 calories or more, depending on the size of the person. That's one way, doubly labeled water, but that's what we do in the research, get pretty close, but still about 5% uncertainty. Uh, and then there's the second most commonly used one are is indirect color calorimetry, um, or as Lane Norton said on our podcast, bomb kilometer. He didn't actually <laughs> say that. I think we were just engrossed in our conversation and he talks even faster than I do. And so instead of bomb calorimeter, it came out as bomb kilometer, or at least that's what I heard. I may have a hearing about it. I, I give him I give him trouble for this all the time. Great podcast, though. I'll link that in the description below. Check that out. We talk about this a little bit. Uh, so anyway, this indirect calorimetry, they put people in a room where they pipe in uh, air, and they also collect all the air leaving the room. And through some different equations, they can figure out how much carbon dioxide you're producing, how much oxygen you're consuming. And then again, using the Weir's equation, you can, uh, who I, I try to look that up. It's just an author. It's not like a famous, he's just a dude. Yes, uh, just a dude. You can calculate how much energy someone is using per day. And again, you use all of that to determine the perfect amount of energy intake to maintain energy balance, that perfect energy equilibrium. You could also technically uh, feed somebody a known amount of calories and then collect all of their uh, excrement, like all of it. So urine, feces, et cetera, like over a period of time and determine that. But that's for whatever reason is not used in the literature that much. Yeah, I'm good. Have you noticed that like all of your stool samples tend to go like missing in the lab? <laughs> <laughs> Can you imagine if you took that to an IRB, they'd be like, bro, no way. We're not doing this. <laughs> so in any case, that's how we do it in the research setting. Uh, you can't get access to doubly labeled water and the uh lab uh the analytical techniques needed to determine this uh whole room calorimeters probably don't have access to that unless you happen to like be involved in this research in which case why are you listening to this podcast <laughs> you already know this stuff so what can you do at home so 
at home, but still in the research setting, uh, we, we use a lot of self-reported intakes. So a dietary recall using a food frequency questionnaire or 24-hour dietary recalls that have been computerized. Um, unfortunately, these self-reported intakes underestimate energy intake by hundreds of calories per day. Um, some studies even showing you know up to 800 calories per day. And again, this is not uniform across individuals. Individuals who uh, tend to have normal BMIs, so 18.5 to 25, tend to underestimate their energy intake by about 10%, whereas individuals with BMIs greater than 30 tend to uh, underestimate their energy intake by 20 to 30%, so substantially higher. Uh, as you may have guessed, people's self-reported activity levels are overreported. They tend to think they exercise more and they eat less than they actually do. Um, even with the advent of all this wearable tech, so like a Fitbit, Apple Watch, Polar, chest strap, I don't know what else they're, they're doing. Is there anything that goes on your face, like our head? Not that I'm aware of, but okay. I don't pay attention to this scene very much. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to come out with something called the crown. You know, it's going to, she's going to wear it and it's going <laughs> to, I don't know what the advantages are, but it's going to be something new. Um, the problem is they're still using just accelerometers and, and you need to really combine accelerometer data with heart rate data, body weight data, and then there's efficiency of movement. There's a lot of unknown variables here. So the like typical Fitbit or Apple Watch or whatever, the calorie reports from activities are wildly inaccurate. Like we're talking 200%, sometimes even more inaccurate. And so you're like, damn, if the, if the accuracy and precision are both in the, in the, in the trash, like what are we using for? I'm like, I don't know. I don't know. And it, when you look at, and so some people would argue like, well, if you give people all this wearable tech, maybe it'll change their exercise behaviors. Cause then they can like see the duration that they're, they're participating in. Yeah. I mean, I suspect that there's similarly a lot of individual variation in pe how people respond to that kind of thing. Cause I've also seen, I, I recently gave a, a back pain lecture and I went through some literature on um, methods of increasing physical activity engagement uh, uh, in general and in among people who have musculoskeletal pain and things like that. And so actually activity trackers, there was actually some favorable data there. All of this is just, you know, population averages based on the people that were selected for studies. And so, yeah, I bet that there's a ton of variation for, for some people. The tracker may be helpful for some people uh, uh, harmful. So tough to say. Yeah. And in general, I'm like, eh, I don't really think much of it. If it's yeah. going to be some sort of motivating factor to get you to meet or exceed the current physical activity guidelines, I'm for them, but probably not for the price point that most of these things are at. Yeah, true. Yeah. Especially if you got a smartphone, because that's already, you know, giving you already some doing it. Already doing it. Okay. So you could use a food frequency questionnaire, 24 hour dietary recall. Those things are freely available on the interwebs to like figure out, oh, how many calories am I eating per day? And like, you know, if your weight's been mostly stable over the last few months, you could say, yeah, that's my energy intake that I need to maintain current body weight. Okay. You could use that. Uh, but uh, again, they're not really that accurate. So the best tool that we have, if you were looking for a number and you didn't have access to any of these lab techniques is the NIH body weight planner. This thing has a ton of data that went into, you know, basically a fancy calorie calculator, put that in the link in the description below. Uh, Dr. Dr. Kevin Hall basically spearheaded this thing. Uh, and a lot of other smart folks have contributed to this. And the actual studies underpinning this this body weight calculator uh, is impressive. Impressive. Um, the one thing I will say is that it will ask you for like, they call it a physical activity modifier or multiplier. It's like, oh, how active are you? And it's like very various amounts of multipliers ranging between like, I think it's 1.2 if you're 
mostly sedentary all the way up to, I think it's 2.4, 2.5. If you're like strenuous occupation plus multiple workouts per day or something like that. Um, those tend to increase the error bars here. And so as I discussed with, uh, Dr. Herman Ponzer, the uh, author of the book burn, it's probably most accurate if you plug in somewhere between 1.35 and 1.55 as your physical activity multiplier. All that's really doing is, is multiplying your basal metabolic rate by the number. And that gives you the amount of calories that you need to, uh, uh, consume to maintain body weight. It's an estimate. It, the data support, you know, behind it is pretty good, but it's still an estimate nonetheless. Um, one interesting thing that I, I came across in preparing for this podcast, uh, uh, was a review article of all of the, uh, national survey data we have on dietary intake and how they all use, you know, these dietary recalls that have been computerized and they're like, look, there's so much junk data in here and here's how you can tell it's junk data. If somebody reports an energy intake, that's 1.35 X their metabolic rate basal metabolic rate. If it's below that, no way. There's no way that they're doing that unless they're hemorrhaging body weight. Yeah. So this is like the person that's like, I'm eating 1200 calories a day and not losing weight. It's like, mm, there may be some days that you're eating 1200 calories a day. Probably not, but maybe, but on average over weeks, it is much not, higher not than sustaining. that. Right. Yes, yeah. exactly. So that's the deal. So again, in order to uh, determine energy intake. You can use a food frequency questionnaire. You can use a 24 hour dietary recall. That would not be my preferred method. If I really wanted to come up with a number, I would just use the NIH body weight planner. And I've linked that in the description below. It's pretty cool. There's like an advanced mode where you can like see how your weight's projected to change over months. And like, then when you need to go back to maintenance level, what sort of energy intake you're going to have to maintain there. Pretty and cool. I, and, I, and I think it's worth emphasizing, like you said, that it's providing an estimate. It's providing you a starting point. But the thing is, it, if it gives you that estimate, imagine yourself as one of the members of those twin studies earlier. You don't know which twin you're going to be. Are you sure. going to be the person who, with the manipulation and energy intake, you you know say in a calorie deficit situation, you lose way more or way less weight due to other compensatory factors that you don't know about yet, you can't input into this model. So the point being, it gives you this estimate as a starting point, and you might start if you are willing to set up a diet around that you know, goal of energy intake. And then you have to manipulate in like an iterative process, adjust based on how you respond, because you would then be kind of proving yourself to be, am I the twin uh, version who is super, you know, sensitive to this uh, energy deficit and I'm going to lose a bunch of body weight. Cool. That's awesome. Congrats. Uh, if you can adhere to it, or are you the person who doesn't respond as well? Well, okay. Then we may have some, some more work to do if we can even get to the bottom of why that might be the case or try a different approach. Yeah. I'm just not, I'm still not sold on like, do we need this number? Is knowing this number helpful? And, and the reason why is it's like, there's this disconnect between knowledge and behaviors. So let's talk about that specifically with respect to energy balance. So we know that changing energy intake typically has a larger effect on body weight and body composition than activity. Changing energy intake typically has a larger effect on body weight and body composition than activity. Doesn't mean that changing activity isn't useful. It just means that if you're looking at the size of the effect, changing the diet is going to be more important than changing the activity. We want you to do both. But if you're looking for like, if you're asking the question, which one is more likely to help me lose weight, diet or exercise? Like mm, diet. I want you to do both though still because there are a bunch of weight independent benefits from changing activity. 
Okay, so we know that. We know, based on our just the discussion we had ooh, about 60 seconds ago, that estimating your energy intake is difficult to do with any sort of accuracy. We know that estimating uh, uh, like how much energy that you're consuming on a day-to-day basis is also difficult. So not only what you need, but what you're actually taking in. So most people are unaware of the amount of food that they have been consuming, even if they have professional training in the field. So this one study uh, compared the reported energy intake in 10 registered dietitians and 10 age, weight, and sex match controls. On average, dietitians underreported their energy intake by 223 calories per day, whereas the non-professionally trained controls underreported theirs by 429 calories per day. So even if you are an expert in this field, you are an expert in the field of nutrition. You're still not good at estimating energy intake. So like, yeah, you have this number maybe you're targeting, but you're the way that you're like getting to that math and, and, and figuring out how many calories you're eating per day, it's still difficult to do. Um, also, to add another wrench to this, changes in energy balance take a long time to manifest. So it's hard to know if the energy intake target or recommendations that you're shooting for are right or wrong for you even with perfect adherence, which is another whole, whole nother assumption. What I mean is that this isn't over a week, two weeks, three weeks. We're talking month, two months, three months, years. And so it's like, okay, so we're making a change based on this calculator. It's got a bunch of data, blah, 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 blah. Okay, well, it's going to take a while to figure out, like, is that right or wrong? You, you change your diet. You're eating all these, you know, the uh, different energy, uh, different amount of calories per day but your weight didn't go down. Does that mean you're eating too much? I don't know. It's just a week. It's just still just noise at this point. Um, and then finally here, additional knowledge. So knowing an energy intake may not be the linchpin for success. So most people who would benefit from weight loss, like those with obesity, try to lose weight. 84% of individuals with obesity know that they're carrying too much body fat and nearly two thirds report trying to lose weight within the previous year. That said, the odds that an individual with obesity achieves a normal body weight within a year is 1 in 210 for men and 1 in 124 for women. It's not like a surprise, right? They're not like, oh, I didn't know I needed to, I should lose weight to promote uh, my health. <laughs> and, and so it's like telling, getting people an energy intake recommendation isn't like, I, I don't see it as the, you know, linchpin in their success. Um, and, and probably a lot of that probably has to do with how food behaviors occur, you know? So we're going to, we're going to bring that all together. We're going to tie the room together here in these take home recommendations. Our major goal here is for more individuals diets to meet the following health promoting criteria. So thing one, total dietary protein intake should fall somewhere between 1.6 to 3.1 grams of protein per kilogram body weight per day. That's total uh, body weight, not lean body mass, just total body weight. Uh, and that's the case unless it's medically contraindicated, perhaps due to uh, some sort of metabolism um, disorder or kidney disease uh, or other medical condition. Um, for those able to consume protein within this range, not really concerned about the source because basically at this dose, it just really doesn't matter whether it's plant-based, whether it's animal-based, et cetera. So it's mostly personal preference. Uh, thing two, total dietary fiber intake should be at least 25 to 30 grams, ideally more per day. And ideally you'd get this from vegetables, fruits, complex carbohydrates, like whole grains, et cetera, and, or, uh, beans, legumes, et cetera. Uh, thing three, dietary fat intake should be primarily unsaturated, uh, mostly from fish and plant sources with, uh, saturated fat limited to approximately 10% or less of total daily calories. 
Um, when replacing saturated fat with other things, uh, we recommend foods that are rich in polyunsaturated or monounsaturated fatty acids or complex carbohydrates, basically depending on the person's preference. Also would limit uh, foods with added sugar, like sugar-sweetened beverages or sodas, as well as highly processed foods, especially those with lots of sodium. So if it's in a box, if it doesn't spoil or doesn't spoil for a long, long time, has a bunch of sodium, has a bunch of added sugar, uh, probably would not be part of our recommendation for a health-promoting dietary pattern. And all of this, ideally, if you if you hit those things, would lead to a total daily energy intake or calorie intake that would help you achieve a healthy body fat and muscle mass level while supporting the appropriate amounts of physical activity. So it doesn't mean necessarily that we need to calculate the you know the calorie intake or the energy intake uh, and then work backwards, but ideally we would change the dietary pattern that would result spontaneously and hitting the appropriate energy intake. So adjusting the food and eating environments um, to help achieve this appropriate level of energy balance uh, and energy intake um, with low levels of conscious effort would be a really important strategy uh, for um, sustaining a healthy body composition and body weight long-term. So if achieving this appropriate energy balance is number one, do we really need an energy intake number? Do we need to know how many calories we should be shooting for per day? I think the best use for this, for like getting a number, is for those who are also going to use some quantitative method, like weighing and measuring their food, counting portions. So you can do that with servings. You can do that with uh, you know packaging data. You can use that with your hand, right? So like a fist size portion of lean protein is about four ounces of protein, or sorry, a palm size portion of lean protein is about four ounces. A fist size serving of whole grain carbohydrates is about one serving. A, you know. A thumb size portion of fat is like one serving. You could whatever, however you want to shake it. And this is especially true, I think, if you're significantly changing the dietary pattern to meet those health promoting criteria. But otherwise, I don't think it's that helpful. I, I really don't. Because like if you're not going to be using any sort of tools to improve your estimation of your current energy intake, then what the hell is the target for? It's just a number. It's a number that exists in a vacuum that <laughs> has some error baked into its calculation and even more error baked into like your sort of day-to-day reporting of, of how close or far you, you get to uh, come to it. So I, I don't know, man. What, what, do you, what do you think about that, Austin? You, you think that calculating an energy intake target is use, useful for folks? Um, so... I think that I can come at this from a couple different angles. One is obviously on a general population wide level with respect to like managing the situation that is obesity as a public health issue. You know, I think about most of the patients that I see, for example, in the, my day-to-day work, be it hospitalized setting or clinics or something like that. Uh, for these individuals having a calorie intake target uh, for, for, I'm not going to generalize and say for all of them, but for the vast majority of them, providing a calorie intake target, regardless of how accurate it may or may not be, is not going to make an impact on their body weight, body fat levels, on the rates of obesity. We could um, have a national, uh, a new national program where each person uh, gets a subsidized visit to a, to a metabolic kind of uh, evaluation, and they're provided with a calorie intake target. The impact that that will have on population-wide obesity levels, I can confidently say, is effectively zero. <laughs> um, and, uh, and there are not many things that I'm willing to be quite that confident on. 
So on, on a big scale like that, I don't think that something like this is going to be super helpful. I think that there are individual situations where somebody might say, this is going, this is the dietary strategy that either makes the most sense to me is to have this kind of a target. Although again, like you said, it probably needs to be paired with some strategy of like, how am I going to get there um, in terms of a, a quantitative approach? You can't just say, well, I know I need this many calories. And so I'm just going to like, you know, go about my day and see if I can ballpark it, you know, because <laughs> uh, that's also not going to work. So it needs to be paired with something. But there are definitely people for whom that may be their preferred strategy that may make the most sense to them in the same way that other people might say, I prefer macro targets or I prefer, you know, hand, you know, as you said, portion sizing that way or, or plate type, uh, based portions and things like that. And then I think for people who have uh, very particular either physical, physique, performance goals kind of things, that's where like that level of granularity and detail can become more useful, even though rec- you have to still recognize that there's like probably bigger error bars around those things than, than, you, may, than you may think. Um, so that's kind of like my, my overall thought process on this is, is perhaps some utility on an individual level, but as you said, paired with other things as well very unlikely to be helpful on a big picture population wide level or for like the average person out there dealing with obesity who, you know, is looking to, to make an impact on that. And this is, you know, a lot of this is reflected in, you know, effectively all of the research interventions on obesity in, in, in studies, randomized controlled trials, where they're comparing things like, you know, intensive lifestyle intervention, dietary counseling, things like that, just against some of our most basic like medications and definitely against some of the newer medications um, that we have available now that many of those meds act specifically on like these, what we've been hammering on these like subcortical areas of the brain that are really driving a lot of these more automatic behaviors. There is not any randomized trial out there showing like an average response of any given uh, lifestyle intervention, for example, for people that can reliably generate 20% weight loss or something like that in Mm -hmm. people. Of course, there's going to be somebody listening to this who said, well, I did it. And it's like, well, again, we talked about like these twin twin studies. There are certain people who are going to respond in a given way. And odds are it's more due to the underlying physiology or biology that person has than it is due to their conscious choices along the way. Um, whereas in these medication studies, you know, most often, most, most recently studies of things like semaglutide and most recently within the past week, we see data on this other one called terzepatide that, you know, over two thirds of the people in the study lost like 22% of their body weight. That is like almost on par with bariatric surgery, uh, uh, results. And this is just from a once a week injection, uh, uh, and, and the uh, same lifestyle counseling that the people who got the uh, placebo and that, that massive difference kind of emerges. So that's kind of a long winded spiel on the overall thoughts on like the utility of just giving people this number, um, uh, uh, versus other, uh, interventions that actually target the underlying biology and don't treat obesity as just like a knowledge deficit or a motivation deficit or something like that. Yeah. I think, yeah, like I said, the, the energy intake, having that target, I, I think can be useful for understanding maybe why certain other behaviors are recommended. So, so for example, if you know, yeah, I'm shooting for 2,100 calories a day, I, since I'm not going to be actively measuring, tracking, you know, using some sort of quantitative method to like keep a, a running t- total per day, a running tally per day. Uh, the number is kind of irrelevant. It's just a, it's just a target that exists in space. And so the other behaviors that are, we would recommend to all folks are kind of used to manufacture people getting to that target. 
which is what I'd really focus on unless somebody wanted to use a quantitative method or prefer and, and subsequently preferred that quantitative method. So things like setting up the food and eating environments appropriately. So effectively what you're trying to do is alter your environment in a way so your automatic behaviors result in you hitting the appropriate energy balance. So and not having and, and, and that way you don't have to like live dieting at RPE 10 all the time. It makes it automatic. It just happens. (laughs) You don't have to weigh out your vegetables and your fruit and your whole grains, you know, and your lean proteins, because if that's, for example, your food environment, which is what you keep stocked in the house is all filled with non-processed, non-super palatable, you know, non-super energy dense foods, you're going to serendipitously arrive (laughs) at, at the appropriate energy balance by and large. Um, so that's the eating environment make, or the food environment, rather make sure your house is stocked with lean proteins, vegetables, fruits, whole grains, to the extent that you can do this sort of stuff, not with a bunch of ultra processed, hyper palatable foods that sugar sweetened beverages, foods that are with a lot of sodium, et cetera. You also want to set up your eating environment so you can eat distraction free. So no phones, no computers, don't watch TV when you eat, try to eat the same time at the same place day to day. All of these things kind of let you be more sensitive to your feelings of fullness uh, because trying to like not eat when you're hungry is an untenable sort of situation. And it doesn't matter what your number is that you're shooting for because, you, you know, the, the, the subsequent behaviors are going to blow that out of the water uh, over the long term. Maybe not on a single day, maybe not in three days. But shoot, man, it's like it's like the person who diets, you know, Monday through Friday or Monday through Thursday. And then Friday, Saturday, Sunday comes along and it's like, you know, <laughs> all bets are off. And it's like, well, I wonder why that is. And it, it, the food environment has changed and, and ultimately made some things available that your automatic behaviors, it, you're just, you're just he- headed towards uh, uh, the danger zone. And the, and the amount of effort that it probably took for them to adhere during the week kind of gets tapped out by the end of the week. It, you yep. know, it can't be RPE 10 all the time, which, which has led to some of the really interesting observations among, among physicians, uh, myself included, and some of my colleagues who I talk to about some of these newer medical treatment approaches is like, we've had patients who might start like one of these medications, just as an example, because yes, there are going to be people who do these things that we suggest, set up their food environment, eating environment, do all these things and make progress. And then in the same way, there are going to be some people who that's not enough for them. That's not, you know, the people who they can, they can be stocked with those things and they'll still find ways through these automatic behaviors. And so you need to intensify the intervention if you want to get the outcome that you're, that you're looking for. And, and hearing quotes from patients who might start some of these treatments that we've talked about where they're like, I feel normal now. Like that kind of a quote is like really uh, a powerful thing. It's like, I feel like I'm a more, I feel like a more normal person. I feel like what I observe everybody else, you know, who, who, you know, is leaner. Um, they seem to be able to do this. Now I feel that way now that I'm on this, you know, treatment that is actually attacking the underlying biology that is you know, kind of driving this process. Yeah. And again, you're just, they, the people on the, with the medications are able to arrive at the energy intake that maybe we calculated it explicitly and maybe we did it, but they're arriving at the appropriate amount of energy intake, you know, spontaneously, spontaneously. Yep. Yeah. Uh, and so you, you set up the food and the eating environments appropriately. We'd have people build meals with the previously mentioned health promoting criteria. So it should be a lean protein fiber rich carbohydrates so fruits vegetables legumes beans whole grains etc uh and then car- the total amount of carbon fa- uh, fat uh intake to preference um and then you would adjust based on longer term results so not one week not two weeks but probably more weeks 
if you have like an event that you have to be at a certain body weight, well, you're kind of throwing this out the window. Um, but that's not the long-term solution here. Uh, and I think that, you know, diets not built on this criteria are probably not first, not maximally health promoting and also like not sustainable in our modern food environment. So this is like people that are like, I'm going to go on a 30 day. I'm not eating sugar. I'm not drinking alcohol, no carbs, you know, anything like that. And it's like, look, I can get behind avoiding added sugars. If you're telling me you're going to cut out sugar, sweetened beverages, I think that's a great like lifelong pursuit. You tell me that you're going to not drink alcohol in excess. Again, I think that's a great lifetime pursuit. You tell me that you're going to avoid, you know, hyper palatable, ultra processed foods, not sock them in your house. I think that's a great lifetime pursuit. But the idea that you're never going to eat carbs again, (laughs) if you are a person who really prefers that dietary pattern, that's not something you can sustain. So you're, you're starting with like the final boss rather than building like the skills and tools needed over time to deal with different challenges. And so I, I don't know. I just, I think I got triggered just, you know, people, I'm starting this challenge. And I'm like, look, if that's what it takes to like get you motivated to make a change, like I'm all for it. But if it's not ultimately gonna be something that you can sustain for a lifetime, like I think you're just wasting time. You're just going to be back here in a couple of weeks and we're going to do this whole thing again. And I don't think it starts with calculating your calories either. Again, unless you're making significant changes to your dietary pattern, which should be ultimately resulting in the appropriate energy intake without you maybe necessarily knowing what that energy intake is. Because it's hard to calculate it accurately, harder to track, you know, how you get there. So that's a two-part series on energy intake. We could have just said, you know, at the beginning, hey, it's a pretty short podcast today. How do you calculate your... (laughs) Part one is eat less. Part two is move more. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. Could have done that. Could have just told people to go to the NIH body weight, you know, planner, and that'll give you a number, but I just don't think the number is that useful. I, 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 you know, the, I, I maybe make a third case for when it's useful. There is this idea that people need to eat either substantially, there's two ideas they're posing, but kind of the same at the same time. There's this idea that people are either need to eat way more than they're currently eating to like sustain the activity level that they're at. Cause you know, they're going to war three times a week to train for an hour or that they need to eat substantially less to lose weight, right? 1200, 1300 calories a day. And neither of those things are true. The energy expenditure from hard training is just not as much as you think unless the duration gets very, very long. So you're training multiple hours per day, multiple times per day, you know, three, four, five, six times a week. Okay. Uh, And the amount of calories you need to eat to lose weight is probably more than you think. The problem is though, your current energy intake is, is not matched to that goal. And so if calculating a number like gives you more insight into that, and I think the NIH body weight planner is pretty good. Great. But again, getting to the, to that number, I think you can do without like a lot of explicit sort of tracking um, outside of like physique or high performance applications. I think that's a reasonable take. You, uh, you tracking macros or what, dude? I haven't tracked a macro. <laughs> it's like the, what's his name? Derek and Step Brothers, where he's like, I haven't had a carb since 1999. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, same thing. Well, yeah, so I just, I just weigh myself every day. And then I have a, I eat generally pretty similar foods day to day. And uh, I guess, yeah, I probably am set up favorably from a genetic standpoint. I guess I would have to concede. 
Yeah. Well, so uh, on my last Instagram, Ask Me Anything, people were like, you don't believe that activity-related energy expenditure increases, you know, really contribute to to weight loss that much. But how do you explain your weight loss? And I'm like, because I'm eating substantially less than I was when I was gaining weight and then maintaining that higher body weight before. And I'm doing a lot more activity. I just don't think that it's costing me a lot to do that. So I, I think my day-to-day energy expenditure is roughly the same, more, more or less. Maybe at the beginning when I like initially had a bump, it like peaked, but it's gradually like kind of just leveling out. But the biggest difference is that I'm eating less and, I, and I'm losing weight. And people are like, well, you've only lost, you know, <clears throat> it's probably five, six, seven pounds now. I mean, and people are like, oh, so it's just going to, uh, like, you thought that you'd lose lose more because you're only eating 2,600 calories a day. And I'm like, I mean, no, because it's only been since February, you know, a couple of months. So six months from now, I expect to be even lighter, maybe trending under 200. <gasps> well, you'll join me or by then I will have bulked and gotten over 200 again for yeah. the first time in years. <laughs> I'm, I'm excited to be under 200 again for the first time uh, in, in, a, in a while. Um, I think it'll be much easier on a dirt bike. A bike. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah and it, people, it, it, it's not so much from like an energy standpoint, like, oh, I'm running out of energy. It's just like, all right, the bike weighs 220, 230 pounds plus me at two, you know, 205 to 210 compared to me at 190, 195. It's just handling dynamics, suspension, everything's different. Yeah, yeah, I bet. All right, that's a wrap on episode 176, Energy Balance and How to Determine the Appropriate Calorie Intake, Part 2, Part 1, and all of its resources are linked in the description below. All the stuff that we talked about in today's episode is are also linked in the description below. A big shout out to Dr. Baraki uh, for recording this with me. Um, and again, just a reminder, we've got a, a sale on all apparel on the website uh, until midnight, basically, uh, May 12th. At 12 a.m. Pacific Standard Time, sale is going to be over, but you can take 15% off on all apparel by using the code BBMPOD. That's B-B-M-P-O-D uh, at checkout. And uh, yeah, get your barbell medicine swag. And before you go anywhere, also leave us a five-star rating and a review. It really helps drive traffic to our podcast so we can keep bringing you all the latest nuance in health and fitness. And we'll see you here next week and every week right here on the Barbell Medicine Podcast. See ya. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.